1 Samuel chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The Lamb of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You call me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. And so he went and lay down. And again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel the third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you call me. And then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. And so Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. And therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning, and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. And Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of the, his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. The word of God for the world. Here's the scene. It's nighttime. Samuel, most likely around the age of 12. Yes, 
are all these connections between Jesus at the age of 12 being presented and Samuel. And here Samuel is asleep in the temple, although this is not the grand temple of Solomon's age. This is sort of a tent sanctuary. He's asleep. And Eli, his mentor, the high priest, is also asleep. Probably somewhere, says in his usual place, probably outside the inner sanctum, the inner precinct. And we know something is about to happen. Of course, there is this whole tingling bit. But it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And visions were uncommon. Well, this is no surprise, considering Eli, who has been entrusted with the priestly family, when he has sons who have completely made a mockery of God. They would skim all the fat off of the sacrifices. They had defiled the temple and defiled the priestly line. So no, no surprise that visions were uncommon and the word of the Lord was rare. And this story sort of begins like a Jewish comedy, says one commentator, Lawrence Wood. It starts off with the Lord calling Samuel, which it's important here to know what, how sort of Samuel breaks down in Hebrew. Samuel. El is God in Hebrew. So Samuel literally means God has heard. It's a little reminder. Samuel, God has heard. So here he's saying, and I've said this, God has heard. Jewish comedy. And he goes to Eli, L, I, my God. Eli, my God, wrong God. Are you calling me? No, no, go back to sleep. It wasn't me. This happens three times. Samuel, God has heard. L-I. No, it wasn't me. And so finally, Eli begins to put a little of this together. says, it is the Lord speaking. He has enough wisdom and memory to say, when you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Probably one of the most profound, simple, and powerful prayers in the Hebrew Bible. Probably because there were very few visions or words of the Lord from any prophetic figure. In fact, that phrase, the word of the Lord was rare, which is sort of like what you would say about jewelry. That phrase doesn't exist anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. The word of the Lord was rare. So I found what one commentator says. This passage begins with an arrestingly modern note. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. 
visions not widespread. And so the story is placed in our time with this verse. We have passed the age of miracles. After this, talking about this part in the scripture, after this there's no pillars of fire, no columns of smoke, no parting of seas or rivers, and most of what follows is a worldly history of successes, defeats, and palace intrigue. I love that. In fact, Samuel's role in anointing human kings will no further be about God. A shiver may come upon us at realizing that we are on our own. And yet, the scripture says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And this is the part I find tingling. Although visions may be rare in the modern world, how many times have you heard that? I just wish for a pillar of a cloud or a, a pillar by night. I mean, the fire by night. How many people said, I wish that God would just come down and, and send me a message? <laughs> Some of you are laughing, speaking to me. Oh, come on. How many of us have said this? <laughs> and though, although visions may be rare in the modern world, they can still happen, Wood says. God only seems to be sleeping. But indeed, while Samuel sleeps, God turns out to be delightfully awake. At Free For All this week, this is the time when we talk about the upcoming scripture, we talked about the irony in this text, that here's Samuel, who's living in the house of the Lord, the temple, here he's literally ministering, he's taking care, attending, and you hear a lot about, this is not his first rodeo, I mean, in 1 Samuel 2, he's learning the people, he's learning the trade under Eli, and so he's sleeping even near the Ark of the Covenant. The symbol of God's very presence, and yet it says he did not know the word of the Lord. that hadn't yet been revealed. This is a modern commentary for us. We can even go to the house of the Lord, be a Christian by birth practically, and yet not have a deepening relationship. We become so accustomed to the rituals like Samuel, cleaning the ark, maintaining the ark, but not know the very presence in it. You notice that today we begin talking about our providence values. Really, this should be entitled part two from last week, part one. Talking about our calling, our vocational task. Today, I want us to look at growth. And growing up, you know, as a child seemed very natural. It just sort of happened. You grew. You got older and hopefully started, right? But it doesn't work that way spiritually. And in Samuel's case, as we said, he didn't even know the voice of God. He knew Eli's voice, of course, which was natural, and he naturally assumed that was who was calling him. But he had to be taught how to listen to the Lord. I mean, think about it. When a baby is born, we don't expect him or her to know calculus or explain the stages of grief. 
when we come out of our baptismal waters, we are just babes in the faith. Paul speaks to this. We act like a child, we drink like a child. And just like physical, emotional, and social growth that takes time and going through developmental stages, so too spiritually. Babies will grow if given proper nutrition. True enough for spiritual growth. As Kathleen said at Free For All, if we've been busy all week without making space for God, how can we expect in the three minutes of silence on Sunday that we would hear God? <coughs> in fact, this seems to be the biggest fallacy in the Christian life to the uninformed or uninitiated, that you can just come to Christ or get saved, and all of a sudden there's this great relationship for all time. But we know in the hard work of relationships that it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, it takes nurturing, it takes cultivation. And so it's no wonder, as someone said last week, where have I been for 20 years? This morning, I want to give you a couple other quotes from my spiritual director, Mahan, who I mentioned last week. <coughs> he said to me recently, and so you see it percolating here, our vocational task is to be transformed. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about whatever you consider your calling to be. Maybe it's a professor, it's a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an athlete, a cook, a mother, a father, a grandparent, a wife, a husband, a child, a learner. Whatever you consider your calling to be, I want you to now immerse this and thinking that your primary calling in those particular ways is to be transformed. That your very mothering is actually about transformation. Your very teaching is about transformation. Your very pastoring is about transformation. Your very fill-in-the-blank. Whatever you are called to do is really about your transformation. So how does this happen specifically? I want you to think about someone particular in your encounter as you are doing and being in your vocation. Someone challenging. Someone that makes these hairs, and I have a lot of them, stand up on end. You know these people? Okay. So, so y'all have people that challenge you? Okay. So this person comes into your life, and instead of thinking them as your adversary or antagonist, what if this very person can be about your transformation? That it's not actually about them at all. 
It's about you. This has radically changed, even in the last two weeks, how I look at even being a pastor. When he asked me the question, how, as being a pastor, can you see everything that happens as a part of your transformation? And I hope that you will take that on, that vocational task yourself, and think about where are the places, the nudges, or maybe even the rough edges, these people or situations that calling you to stay up a little bit later at night or in the middle of the night. You know what I'm talking about. That maybe those experiences themselves or people can be about your transformation. I, I often mention systems theory. And I, I'm getting a little bit away from the Samuel text right now, but part of talking about growth in a communal situation when we're talking about being the body of Christ together, about how we can discern as a body of Christ, how we can grow together as a body of Christ. Because Megan Siler told me this week, I'll make sure I get this question. He said, this is a great question for the church. And he wasn't talking specifically about our church, but he said, do they want to be taken care of or do they want to grow? <laughs> Don't worry, he doesn't know you. <laughs> but it was an amazing question that clearly I have been grappling with. And it got me thinking of a little bit about, again, the system theory that I work under about differentiation, connection, and being a non-anxious presence. So I'm going to share a little bit about what I kind of do in the background and sort of, sort of my practice, and hopefully this can help us as a body in discernment and living life together as we continue to talk about these values. The first one is about self-differentiation, and I mentioned this at Free For All a little bit. That for growth to happen, it requires that each self be well-defined. So this, we have individual work to do. Okay, this requires clarifying who you are and your calling, your values. It's called self-regulation. This is the inner work of not being reactive. <clears throat> Deepening who and whose you are so the ego self when on the line, doesn't react, get fearful or angry. Part of what we're doing in the Lenten study, this whole Lenten series, is going to come back to these questions of differentiation, of being the best true self, not false self, that we can be. This is very, very important. And we have to do this work. This is, again, how we practice our faith. So whether you're in an office meeting or you're in a family situation and you start feeling angry, instead of getting hooked into that angry spot, you're able to recognize the moment in which you're getting hooked and you say, what is this about? This is, this is a very well self-defined person. 
This, this is the basis of communal transformation, that we're all able to sort of stay self-differentiated in connection. And this is the part that when we talk, when we get to the, we do this values discussion every January, by the way. And I know, it, and you perhaps think, oh my goodness, you know, what, what possibly can we learn again about these values? But every time I come back to this growth piece, I think about all my colleagues and their churches. Rarely do they get around this question of do people want to be taken care of or do they want to grow? And so much of the pastoral life is about maintaining institution or peoples, and rarely do we really get to the heart, pushing, consoling, but gathering people to the place of differentiation, connection, and the third one, being a non-anxious presence. In fact, in communities that are healthy and least toxic, you have people who are well differentiated and people that can act from a non-anxious presence. In fact, as one person said, how can you touch the Holy Spirit or be creative if you're in an anxious space? The Holy Spirit moves and breathes for us even now. And I don't know what is floating in and through the neocortex and beyond. And in this place, and in this heart full of whatever you came with this week. But when you get into the anxious place, it's like all of a sudden it blows out the Holy Spirit. Growth, that place that's fertile and ripe and ready to transform, requires us to move together into a non-anxious place, a trust a lot of problems. How do we move into a place of trust? And we talked about that at Free For All. I want to go back now to the text. Eli and Samuel. I bet Samuel began with a lot of passion and a lot of fervency and a lot of idealism. But do you know by the end of his story, his sons are no better than Eli's? <laughs> The story repeats. I mean, if I was writing this book, I would be a better redactor. <laughs> Glenda said at Free For All, whatever idealism we start with, it gets beaten out of us. And she went on to say, it's only when we've shined the ark one too many times we realize that it's not filling us. It's not meeting the need. Something is not being met. Mayhan Seiler said again, something I wrote down, I don't think we change until we have to. I don't think, Julie, he says, I don't think we change until we have to until we break down or until our systems that we thought were working stop. Many of us, like Eli, are content with weak eyes. 
Did you notice that commentary in the beginning? There's all kinds of imagery using with light and seeing and not seeing. And here this seer of the Lord is has dim or weak eyes. He has lost the vision that God has given him. He's content with just seeing a slice of life. And don't we do the same? You know, we go around and it's sort of like, well, this is what we know. We don't crave much more until we realize we're going to fall down if we don't get our eyes fixed. We change when? The way not to. And growth requires some work. I mean, who wants to put out a vision for their church that's called practicing our faith? Practice? Work? This is church. I'm teasing with you. I love it. We had, some, again, some wonderful conversation around the table on Tuesday. I said, do we want to do the work? Phil says, well, you have to want to. It's sometimes easier to tend to the ark or to the temple. It's easier to put in floors, to clean. And Alan said, it's mindless too. (coughs) Ah, we all chuckled. Everyone said, perhaps that's why we stay on our certain paths, when they become mindless. It was hard for Samuel that day to speak truth to his mentor. The words that tingled were tough words. This is not a nice, sweet little tale. What Samuel did was lean into that Holy Spirit nudge, that non-anxious presence. And he spoke the word of the Lord. I learned very early in life That honesty really is the best policy. Maybe it was just the family continually beating that aphorism into my head. Or the experience of stealing bubble gum at like eight years old and my mom making me go back and return it. But early on, or maybe it was that I had a psychiatrist as a mother. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, we always practiced honesty. Honesty with our emotions, with our thoughts. How does that make you feel? Well, I don't want to tell you how it makes me feel. But we practiced it when I didn't want to practice it. It was learning to be honest with myself and having a safe place to do it. I mean, that's really the key not even just encouraging that you be honest, but there's a welcome space to do it. And that's what church should be. Otherwise, we live out of these false selves, which is why I keep harping on this. And then, in a false self, we sort of lose sight of who we really are, and we present as someone different. And see, before we know it, we're sort of this contorted, twisted vision of who we once were. And growth is absolutely stunted. And so it takes sometimes a story like Eli and Samuel to just push us, uncomfortably so, sometimes, 
to remember our calling, to remember the calling to be transformed. I love what Herb said, that both Eli and Samuel were, giving up, were given a calling, but notice the stark contrast of their response to their callings. Eli was called to lead a priestly family in the ways of Yahweh, and then Phil chimes in, yeah, he responded, but then he got over it. Then he had his tasks to do. And Samuel, with perhaps naivete on his side and passion, he goes back to Eli and says the word of the Lord that was given to him. Judgment. It was a word of judgment. Perhaps there's something to be said about going back and listening to our first calling. What was it that God called you to do and to be? Kathleen shared a moving story around the table about her calling to go to medical school. She felt it was a very sacred calling. It was inspired to go, but she said, during medical school, you had to be selfish just to get to the other side. She said she wondered if there were any compassionate doctors left on the other end. Sort of like Glenda's comment earlier, it gets beaten out of you. It's hard to remember our calling. I think perhaps if you feel, if you're in the room feeling some of this, sort of the heaviness of sifting through callings and the heaviness of, you know, have I abandoned my calling or the heaviness of, am I differentiating? I want you to hear something very simple. And then I think at the bottom and most profound piece of this story is the call listen. I mean, if we, can't, if we can't move into some of those other places yet, I want us to put ourselves in the story at the age of 12. Imagine you are 12 years old, kind of like Jerry said this morning, and the questions you had for God. You didn't, hopefully you weren't shaming yourself too much at 12, or feeling the inadequacy of not fulfilling your calling. Hopefully, you can go back in that place and think of yourself as Samuel and simply rehearse and practice the prayer to speak, Lord. I can't do anything else right now. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm worn. I'm just going to listen. I went to see Selma. There was a very powerful scene in this movie. It's not going to give it away because you were there. You lived it. You saw it. You know what happens, right? But I'm always moved by Martin Luther King, perhaps because of his speeches as being a pastor. I'm, I'm like, whoa, I can't 
the way that he, not only the rhythm in which he delivers his speech, but the way he puts words together, his demonstration, of course, of conviction and courage, I'm so moved. And so I thought for sure one of these rousing speeches, you know, I would be taking notes or something. But when I went to see the movie, it wasn't a rousing speech or a conversation that turned me. It was a different scene. There had been, for example, this initial march in Selma, from Selma, of just a handful of African Americans who had left and were beaten, and it was seen on CBS and national television around the world. And so this sort of became the cry for King to get others. So he said, please come and help us on this march. And at this point, they were able to get a 1,000 people to come, including clergy, and it said a third white folks came. And so in this sort of dramatic scene, you've got the, the Orthodox white priest on the front line with Martin Luther King in the middle, a nun right behind him. You have just a huge group coming over that famous Edmund Pettus Bridge. And then you see, and you're, and you're not sure what's going to happen, and of course there's the blockade, the sheriff and his, his posse, and they split. They divide and they, they stand equally on each side, making way. And I couldn't believe this. What happens is Martin Luther King kneels down, bows his head, and he starts praying. And there's this moment of silence. You know, here's the, the moment to act, right? The moment to do, the moment to move, the moment to march. And he gets up and he turns back. He goes back. And everybody follows him. And you should hear the people, the conversation in which they say, oh man, the activists, the people that had flown down to, to help them, to help out with the cause. What were you thinking? And there's this great line about, it wasn't the time. He didn't feel right about it. He was listening. He was listening to a call. For he knew that it could have been a trap. And it was only days later that he was given the authority to go and do it peacefully. And had much more powerful of an implication, as you know, six months later right to vote for the African-American was granted. There is a time in the fullness of time for things to be done. But we have to listen. And as I said in my prayer, a lot of times there's so much noise, we can't make sense of it. We don't even know who and whose we are. We can't hear there's been damage done. And so we are called again this morning to remember our vocational task. 
that in each one of your vocations, the call is really about being transformed, growing. And I end with this. In Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, should Avery leaves this juke joint on her way to the church, pastored by her estranged father. On a forced march through the cotton fields, Shiv's accompanied by an impromptu choir singing on their way. Maybe God's trying to tell you something. You know that song? Maybe God's trying to tell you something. Written by the late Andrea Couch. Crouch. Maybe God's trying to tell you something. Maybe this morning God's trying to tell you something. Just maybe. God wants us not just to be taken care of, but to grow, to be transformed into all that God called you to be. We need your voice. We need you to be you and the best differentiated you you can be. Maybe, maybe if, if all else feels too far, just join me in these next few minutes in praying the prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant.